Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for standing by. Welcome to this Northland Power conference call to discuss the 2020 second quarter results. During the presentation, all participants will be in a listen-only mode. Afterwards, we will conduct a question and answer session. At that time, if you have a question, please press star 1 on your telephone keypad. If at any time during the conference you need to reach an operator, please press star 0. As a reminder, this conference is being recorded Thursday, August 13th, 2020, at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. Conducting this call for Northland Power are Mike Crawley, President and Chief Executive Officer, Pauline Alamchandani, Chief Financial Officer, and Wasim Khalil, Senior Director of Investor Relations and Strategy. Before we begin, Northland's management has asked me, to remind listeners that all figures figures presented are in Canadian dollars and to to caution that certain information presented and responses to questions may contain forward-looking statements that include assumptions and are subject to various risks. Actual results may differ materi- materially from management's expected or forecasted results, results. Please read the forward-looking statements section in yesterday's news release announcing Northland Power's results and be guided by its contents in making investment decisions or recommendations. The release is available at www.northlandpower.com. I will now turn the call over to Mike Crawley. Please go ahead. Thank you, Thea, and good morning, everyone. Uh, Thanks for joining us today. This morning, we will review our second quarter 2020 financial and operating results and provide an update on the business. Following our remarks, we look forward to taking your questions and comments. Now, Pauline and I also have David Pavel, Executive Vice President of Development, joining us today on the call as well. We continue to show resilience in our business considering the challenges we faced from COVID-19 and its implications. Our teams have risen to these challenges, ensuring that our operations continue unabated and that we continue to execute on our strategic objectives. We successfully completed a number of initiatives during the quarter that enhance our financial position and advance our growth pipeline. We'll have more to say on these shortly. First, turning to the quarter. I will provide a high-level overview of our second quarter results, and Pauline will provide a more detailed look into the financial numbers later in the call. We achieved healthy growth and adjusted EBITDA, reporting a 17% increase in the quarter compared to a year ago. Adjusted EBITDA in the quarter was approximately $227 million compared to $194 million in the same period in 2019. Our free cash flow per share in the second quarter was $0.09 per share compared to $0.20 per share in 2019, representing a decrease of 55% year over year. Pauline will take a deeper dive into the quarterly numbers, but I'd like to point out that the decrease in free cash flow was primarily, primarily attributable to higher growth spending relative to 2019 and the timing of a scheduled debt repayment for Deutsche Boot following the declaration of commercial operations at the end of March. However, year-to-date, when we include the X 
excess pre-completion revenues recorded in the first quarter with respect to Deutsche Boot, our free cash flow per share was $1.17 up from $0.98 in the prior year. This keeps us firmly on track to meet our full-year guidance. Strategically, we executed on a number of initiatives during the quarter intended to strengthen our competitive position and enhance our growth objectives. We strengthened our internal capabilities with the addition of Wendy Franks to our senior management team. As Executive Vice President of Strategy and Investment Management, Wendy will be responsible for providing leadership in business strategy, investment management, and making strategic investments in growth opportunities across new technologies for the business. We also bolstered our capabilities with respect to our sustainability initiatives with the addition of a new Director of Sustainability, and we added leadership to drive the origination of commercial and industrial power purchase agreements. Subsequent to the end of the quarter, we successfully closed a $465 million permanent financing for our EBSA utility, allowing us to repay the balance on the 12-month bridge loan facility that was used to acquire the asset as well as credit facilities at the utility. We also repaid a portion of the balance on our corporate credit facility to provide us with additional liquidity and financial flexibility. We finalized the purchase agreement for the acquisition of EBSA upon receiving final regulatory approval of EBSA's proposed tariff by local regulators. The final price was 2.5 trillion Colombian pesos or approximately 1 billion Canadian dollars, which was adjusted from the 2.4 trillion Colombian pesos or 960 million Canadian dollar price we reported on January 14, 2020 upon closing of the acquisition. As communicated previously, pursuant to the share purchase agreement, the final purchase price was subject to post-closing adjustments following a review of the final tariff resolution in the event of a deviation from the proposed tariff. At La Lucha, our construction activities continue, and the project remains on track for completion in the second half of 2020. While COVID-19-associated restrictions did affect the completion timing somewhat, activities continue, and we are still confident that the project will be completed later this year. As our first project to be underpinned by commercial and industrial customer offtake agreements, we are progressing to secure these offtake agreements for La Lucha. We expect to secure them through our qualified supplier NP Energia closer to project completion later this year. At our Hailong Offshore Wind Project in Taiwan, the team continues to make progress. Work continues on securing power purchase agreements for the remaining 744 megawatt allocation secured under an auction process. Recent events in regards to agreements with commercial, corporate off-takers have certainly highlighted the very favorable market in Taiwan for corporate PPAs. This was a positive signal to the market of the growing demand for renewable energy by the leading global corporations and for Taiwan to now have one of the world's largest commercial PPAs signed is a great step. Hailong, uh, through our auction projects, has the option, also has the option to pursue commercial PPAs, and this is, of course, part of our strategic options. To be clear, the 744-megawatt auction projects have met all the requirements for the utility PPAs tied to those auction bids. As the world continues to transition to green energy, we see considerable opportunities ahead of us in the coming years for our business to grow. We've established a local presence in multiple global regions through our regional development offices and have bolstered our capabilities to compete, 
Leveraging our global presence and capabilities, we continue to source development and M&A opportunities to position ourselves to grow our portfolio and deliver returns for our shareholders. To put this into perspective, our offshore wind objectives in Asia, the projects we have identified present nearly 2.6 gigawatts of growth potential for us and could double the amount of current generation capacity for the company. We also look to leverage our existing platforms that we've established now in Latin America to source further growth opportunities in Colombia and Mexico. And our teams continue to look for additional opportunities in other key markets that we have identified where Northland will look to establish a presence. I will now turn the call over to Pauline for a more detailed review of our financial results. Thank you, Mike, and good morning, everyone. Last night, Northland Power released operating and financial results for the second quarter of 2020. We generated adjusted EBITDA of $227 million in the second quarter, which was an increase of $32 million, or a 17% increase from a year ago. The primary drivers behind the increase in adjusted EBITDA year-over-year included the additional contribution from our Deutsche Butte project, which achieved commercial operations at the end of March, and EBSA, which was consolidated from the closing of acquisition on January 14th of this year. These two projects contributed approximately $54 million in incremental adjusted EBITDA in the quarter. These results were slightly offset by a $12 million decrease in operating results at our Gemini and North Sea One facilities in the North Sea, primarily settling from lower wind resources during the quarter, combined with continued weakness in the wholesale market prices at Gemini and unpaid curtailments at North Sea One due to unscheduled grid repairs. Thus far in 2020, we have seen weakness in wholesale market prices and a higher level of negative pricing and unpaid curtailments. Year-to-date, as disclosed in our MDNA, we have experienced approximately $46 million of losses from unpaid curtailments due to negative pricing and grid repairs at our German wind farms and lower market pricing at Gemini. While the majority of these experience losses are due to market-related conditions and grid repairs, some of which have been reflected in our annual guidance, there are a multitude of factors that impact our performance, and we will be able to provide additional color next quarter on a narrowed guidance range. Also included within our second quarter results were development expenditures of approximately $13 million, primarily relating to our high-long offshore wind project, up from $5 million in the prior year. With respect to free cash flow, Northland generated a total of $17 million, or $0.09 per share, in the second quarter. This represents a 55% decrease on a per-share basis from the second quarter of 2019. The primary driver behind the year-over-year decrease in free cash flow was a $41 million, or $0.18 per share, scheduled increase in principal repayments, primarily attributed to Deutsche Vue. Following the declaration of commercial operations at the end of March, the project's first scheduled principal repayment occurred in June. The payment was evenly amortized between Q1 and Q2 in the amount of $0.18 per share per quarter. Also contributing to the lower free cash flow year-over-year was a higher level of project development activities, mainly attributable to high-long, as previously discussed. As we outlined in February when we provided our 2020 financial guidance, Northland allocated a higher level of spending on its development expenditures, primarily at high long. 
For 2020, development expenses are expected to total 45 to 50 cents of 2020 free cash flow per share, including development costs and overhead, which represents an increase from a total of 24 cents per share in 2019. Thus far in 2020, development expenditures have amounted to 17 cents per share. We expect to commence capitalization of Hylong in the second half of 2020 as the project is continuing to advance. By Q3, we will provide more of an update with respect to our development expenses for 2020. However, at this time, they remain unchanged from guidance. Our rolling four-quarter free cash flow payout ratio calculated on a cash dividend basis for the period ended June 30th, 2020, was 62%, up from 58% last year. With respect to our financing activities, we successfully completed a number of transactions in the quarter that were intended to increase our corporate liquidity and enhance our financial position. On May 11th, we completed the early redemption of our Series C convertible debentures, which were due June 30th, 2020. Of the $149 million of principal outstanding, $147 million worth of debentures were converted into approximately 6.8 million shares with the remaining nominal amount redeemed in cash. Also in the quarter, we announced the signing of an agreement for the permanent financing for EBSA for an aggregate amount of approximately $465 million. The permanent financing included a Canadian dollar tranche and a Colombian peso tranche for an initial two-year term, which Northland expects to renew annually. The two facilities carry a blended interest rate of approximately 5.3% and provide Northland with the ability to right-size EBSA's capital structure annually by increasing leverage commensurate with expected increases in EBSA's adjusted EBITDA. The financing closed in early July. On June 30th, we further enhanced our corporate liquidity with the completion of the upsizing of the debt on our North Battleford facility, which resulted in gross proceeds of $52 million at an effective interest rate of 2.1%. These net proceeds were, were generated opportunistically and will be used for general corporate purposes and to help fund growth. As outlined in our news release yesterday, Northland announced a change to the discount rate applicable to its dividend reinvestment plan, whereby common shareholders and Class A shareholders may elect to reinvest their dividends in common shares of Northland at a 3% discount from the previous discount of nil. This change is effective with the dividend currently scheduled to be paid on September 15, 2020 to shareholders of record of August 31, 2020. Northern remains in a very strong liquidity position, and the dividend reinvestment program is intended to supplement the funding of select growth initiatives that are continuing to progress. Turning to our 2020 outlook, I want to make a couple of comments and provide some details on our adjusted EBITDA and free cash flow per share guidance. As we have noted earlier, our business strategy remains focused on enabling us to meet our commitment to our shareholders despite the implications of COVID-19. The strength of our balance sheet and stability of our cash flows, which are underpinned by long-term revenue contracts, combined with ample liquidity, positions well both from a defensive perspective and to pursue growth opportunities. Our 2020 guidance remains unchanged at this time. We continue to expect adjusted EBITDA to be in the range of $1.1 billion to $1.2 billion and expect free cash flow per share to be in the range of $1.70 to $2.05 per share. I want to take a moment to highlight our debut debt assumptions that are included within our guidance. 
As I noted earlier, with the achievement of commercial operations at the end of March, we are working to restructure the project's 1.5 billion euro senior debt. Although we paid the first 46 million euro principal debt amount in June, our 2020 guidance assumes we are successful in resculpting our amortization schedule such that the December payment of approximately 38 million euros is deferred. We are continuing to evaluate if this is the most optimal decision for us and we'll provide an update during our Q3 results. We typically set funds aside for scheduled debt principal repayments. For reporting purpose, we allocate semi-annual repayments evenly across two quarters for purposes of calculating free cash flow. For 2020, Northland's share of Gemini and North Sea One annual principal repayments are expected to total 82 million and 80 million euros, respectively. We have included this disclosure in our MDNA for better transparency in forecasting free cash flow. Before I turn the call back over to Mike, I wanted to quickly touch base on our balance sheet and available liquidity. We have a strong balance sheet and ample excess liquidity available, which was further enhanced by the two facility-level financings completed in the quarter. At the end of the quarter, we had access to $561 million of cash and liquidity, comprising $106 million of corporate cash on hand and $455 million of liquidity available on a revolving facility to help us pursue growth initiatives. This was an increase from $423 million available at the end of the first quarter. With that, I will now turn the call back over to Mike for his concluding remarks. Thank you, Pauline. In closing, I wanted to highlight that while our primary focus during these times is the health and safety of our employees and all stakeholders, we also feel a great sense of responsibility to continue delivering electricity under our long-term offtake agreements and concessions. Our efforts continue to focus on ensuring our facilities operate at the highest levels of availability, delivering the essential power that our offtake counterparties rely on and need. We've taken measures to enhance our financial flexibility and liquidity, as Pauline has outlined, to weather the current environment and to ensure that our business remains resilient. Lastly, by leveraging our financial flexibility, extensive development expertise and knowledge, we will continue to identify and develop future opportunities to further expand our global development footprint and enhance Northland's growth. That concludes our prepared remarks. We'd now be happy to take your questions. Thea, please open the line for any questions. Yes, sir. At this time, I would like to remind everyone that if you would like to ask a question, to press star 1 on your telephone keypad now. Again, that's star 1 for any questions over the phone line. We'll pause for just a moment to compile the Q&A roster. Your first question will come from Sean Stewart with TD Securities. Please go ahead. Thank you. Good morning. Um, a couple questions to start with. First on the, the unpaid uh, curtailment in Germany, I, I think the MDNA referenced 28 days for each facility potentially. Can you give us an idea of, of where we are in relative to that, that maximum uh, for each facility and, and what we might expect to see in, in the third quarter with respect to the grid repair, I, I suppose, specifically? Yeah, so I'll, we'll get to this exact numbers in, in just one second, uh, Sean. But with respect to uh, Deutsche Bucht, which had a, a significant uh, unscheduled outage uh, in the second quarter, uh, most of the unscheduled days have now been used up. Uh, so we don't anticipate any significant uh, outage or unscheduled outage that would be uncompensated for the rest of the year. 
on North C1, uh, there are still uh, uh, almost a full allotment of unscheduled days uh, available for the rest of the year. Uh, I would say one thing on, on both of those projects is that what we've seen uh, in both respects is that early on with some of the new infrastructure from the transmitter, uh, there have been some what we'd kind of characterize as teething issues uh, that have been worked out, and we saw that with Nord C1 earlier, uh, not long after that project was commissioned, uh, and we've obviously seen a, a lengthy outage this quarter with Deutsche Uh So, I mean, no guarantee, Sean, but uh, I think it is, uh, in our view, uh, certainly a non-recurring event and, uh, and the nature of, of new, new infrastructure that once it begins operating, the transmitter sees uh, uh, what's wrong. We don't always get a ton of transparency or, or, or you know, disclosure of exactly what went wrong, wrong from the transmitter, but, uh, but certainly our experience with Nord C1 is that uh, early on there's some issues, but then it tends to uh, uh, normalize. Thanks, Mike, for that. Um, you, you mentioned for Highlong to be and and three, uh, the, the going down the, the the path of securing commercial agreements to augment the um, the capacity awards already. Can you just give us an idea of, of how that might look? How you marry those two together uh, to to come up with a a full contract structure for those projects? Yeah. So so both of those uh, projects. Uh, total 744 megawatts had to complete their permitting in order to execute their PPA with uh, Thai Power, the the utility, right? Um, and so that that's the process under the auction that we bid into, and and the PPAs would be at the price that we bid into that that auction. We have both those projects now uh, have met all the permitting requirements uh, to sign the PPA. I think we've disclosed in an earlier call that we have held off on signing uh, a PPA because we've been told by Thai Power that they're bringing out a new PPA, uh, which will have uh, some advantageous terms or some preferable terms in it, uh, including, we believe, the ability to kind of step in and step out of that PPA uh, and uh, enter into commercial offtake agreements, but still use the Thai Power PPA as a floor, if you will, right, or as a backstop. Uh, we haven't seen the draft yet, and, and we're, we're told that it's still coming. It's not the, the biggest priority, given the projects don't come online until 2025, so and, and don't go to uh, FID until 2022. But we're told that it's coming, so we're waiting for it. We expect it to come this year. So that's that. that once we ha have that new draft of the PPA, we would then move to execute on the Thai Power PPA. At the same time, uh, we've been uh, in discussions with commercial off-takers uh, for a commercial PPA uh, for those projects, which you'd expect would have to be <laughs> at enhanced economics, otherwise we wouldn't uh, enter into that. So that's uh, what's going on right now. Uh, David Pavel's on the line. Uh, he's closer to it, but uh, is there anything that I've, I've left out, David? Uh, no, thank you, Mike. No, uh, no, you've co covered it well. Uh, so basically, the key work stream there continues to be a main focus of the business. And you referenced in your uh, introduction, of course, we've boosted the team as well to bring more capacity in to help deliver that. So it remains on track, and and hopefully more to report in the um, uh, in the second half of the year. 
And and on the commercial side, would the idea be similar to what Orsted did with the, the semiconductor company, find one big partner, or do you syndicate that across a number of different uh, off-takers? That's, that's one option, uh, to find one, one off-taker. Uh, there's a simplicity to that. Um, uh, there may also be, you know, better economics around syndicating it across a number of different off-takers. So those are the, the options that we're, we're considering right now. But uh, uh, in our view at this point, both options uh, are, are, you know, available and are being explored. Okay. Uh, I will get back in the queue. Thanks very much for the detail. Thanks, Sean. The next question will come from Nelson Ng with RBC Capital. Please go ahead. Uh, great, thanks. Um, just a quick follow-up to Sean's question in terms of um, curtailment. Uh, how does the uh, curtailment look in Q3? Obviously, there's uh, less uh, grid outages, but um, how does it look from a negative pricing perspective? Uh, oh, and on, so on, yes, on, on negative pricing, uh, the what we've seen as, as the lockdown in Europe has kind of, come to an end in, in May, uh, roughly is probably about a month month ahead of uh, North America, certainly a month ahead of Canada. Uh, we've seen uh, demand start to uh, pick up, and uh, it it is probably tough to say during the summer, because the summer isn't usually when you see uh, negative pricing, uh, but, uh, but certainly we're seeing kind of conditions return more back to normal, uh, which would lead us... Uh, to believe that, assuming there's not a, a subsequent lockdown or anything like that in Europe this fall, uh, that we would expect to kind of move back to what our, our budgeted assumptions were for uh, uh, for uh, uh, uncompensated curtailment related to negative pricing. Okay. And then uh, just to clarify the debut grid outage or repair, that was fully in Q2 and it didn't drag on to, into Q3? A few days into Q3. Mostly in Q2. Okay. Got it. Um, and then a quick question on the uh, EBSA financing. Um, how large was the uh, Canadian dollar tranche uh, of that um, uh, debt? And then also, can you give a bit more color as to the, the two-year term? Like why two years versus, uh, versus a longer term? Sure. Um, the financing was about half and half uh, split, uh, Canadian dollar and, and Colombian tranche. And uh, so I, I think with the term, um, we, we are going to work with our, our lender group to uh, increase term on that facility. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we have to remember the conditions that we were in, market conditions that we were in when we, when we got this financing done. I think it's a, a testament to, to, to Northland and, and EBSA itself. Uh, and so the term was, uh, slightly shorter than, than what we would like, but, but hopefully going into, to next year, we'd, we'd look to, to lengthen term on that, uh, facility. But the, um, we, we plan to renew it annually, and uh, part of the strategy around that is because we have annual increases in EBITDA, so that allows us to, to recapitalize uh, the, the project on an annual basis. Okay. And then just one more question for you, Pauline, before I get, get back in the queue. You mentioned that you're looking to restructure the uh, debut debt. Um, I think for the other uh, offshore wind facilities, you also uh, took uh, or reduce the uh, credit margin or the spread. Like, are you also looking to to do the same for uh, for this as well? 
yes, subject to, to market conditions, which we're, which we're looking at and for, will form part of our uh, evaluation in, in uh, deciding to move forward with this, uh, with this uh, refinancing. Okay, great. Thanks. I'll get back in the queue. The next question will come from David Quisada with Raymond James. Please go ahead. Thanks. Morning, everyone. Uh, my first question here is on La Lucha and, I guess, renewables in Mexico more broadly. I know the, there have been some, some issues with the government there and their, and their stance on certain foreign investment uh, on renewable projects. Is, is La Lucha kind of outside of that because you'll be looking for uh, commercial offtake agreements? Um, I'm just wondering if, if you see any, um, any challenge there and, and how it colors your thoughts on uh, future developments in the country. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'd say, I'd say La Lucha has not been completely unaffected by some of the decisions and, and positions the government has taken. Uh, as you recall, uh, when the, the new government came in or the new administration came in, they, they canceled the uh, auctions for centralized auctions for renewable power, which by that point we had decided we weren't pursuing anyway. So that that had no impact on us, and in fact, in our view, given our business plan, that that was, was probably preferable in a way because it uh, meant there was less uh, uh, low-cost renewables coming in through those centralized auctions, and it uh, uh, supported our business to plan to, to, to pursue corporate offtake for uh, for renewables for our renewable assets. Now, what they've done more more recently, David, is is uh, a, f- a few things to uh, during the economic. Lockdown or uh, for COVID-related lockdown, they've done a couple of things to inhibit uh, the in- in- interconnection of new renewable assets during that lockdown period. Um, there were injunctions filed by ourselves and by others, even though we were going to be connecting after the, the lockdown was over, but a number of generators, including ourselves, filed injunctions and uh, with courts and the uh, the the decision essentially was quashed or was was stopped. Uh, and there was another uh, effort from uh, the administration to frustrate uh, private power companies that was similarly uh, stopped by injunctions through the courts by uh, private power companies. So, uh, I mean, what's going on is, is a couple of uh, attempts to do things to to to, to Frustrate private power companies, but more specifically to try and advantage and protect CFE and to, to uh, help Pemex find a customer for some of their fuel oil through through the CFE, the, the, the utility. Um, and so far, by and large, the courts have prevented the governments from uh, taking these actions uh, and will continue to kind of work in concert with other generators uh, if further uh, attempts are made. Uh, I, I would say that, that the real target of the government is is to uh, uh, preserve some market share, level of market share for the CFE as much as we can tell, uh, and uh, the, the the kind of target as well as probably some of the larger generators, uh, private generators in Mexico. So given that we right now are building 130 megawatts of solar and we've got uh, relative to the total installed capacity of Mexico. Uh, you know, fairly modest uh, goals in terms of uh, build-out in the next few years, uh, I think in the end uh, the situation will regulate itself. 
Okay, great. That's good color. Thank you. And then maybe just one more for me. Um, the, the the potentially used the bigger turbines at High Long 2A. I'm just wondering how you see that potentially affecting, if at all, uh, the return profile of the project. Any any ballpark on on cost savings, and, and I guess how you look at the kind of risk reward of of making that move. Yeah, I mean, I mean, overall, it's it, it would be. Uh, an enhancement to the project economics with offshore wind if you have fewer uh, turbine locations by virtue of having larger uh, turbines uh, it really does significantly reduce your your installation costs but also your operating costs as well and uh, and and your balance of plant infrastructure you don't need as many cables to interconnect the turbines and so on so um, it is is definitely a, a positive step uh, and uh, we take some comfort that the turbine is uh, an evolution on a current platform that SGRE or Siemens Gamesa uh, has already been using for several years and, and where there's a number of turbines already, uh, a lot of turbines already operating on that platform. It's just, uh, it just scaled it up a bit. Uh, so, yeah, so it's overall a positive uh, for the project. That's great. Thank you very much. I'll get back in the queue. The next question will come from Rupert Mayer with National Bank. Please go ahead. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Hi, Rupert. To, uh, uh, start with, with EBSA. So you saw a revision to the, the regulated tariff in the quarter. Can you give us more color on what that new tariff looks like? Are there any uh, big changes since the, uh, the first time we discussed this asset uh, a number of months ago? And maybe you could give us the, the ROE and, uh, and EBITDA forecast for this year. I mean, yeah. I mean, the the, the tariff changed. So it was, the, the, there was a, the original submission. There was uh, what was originally approved back in December uh, by the regulator, and then an appeal was submitted uh, by the prior owner, right? And uh, uh, and then we finally got the decision. So the the decision ended up, as these things often do, somewhere between the two goalposts of uh, what was submitted by the prior owner of EBSA and uh, what was. Uh, uh, and what uh, um, what was originally uh, uh, proposed by the regulator or approved by the regulator in December, so it, uh, it, it to some extent kind of split the difference. Um, uh, so, in terms of our economics on the project, the economics on the project, uh, I think from uh, original FID have uh, improved marginally from our st standpoint. Uh, so we're kind of, by and large, steady state. Uh, it's just some movements around in terms of uh, what was approved and what was not approved within the uh, the total filing. Okay, as a follow-up to that, it sounds like you're you're looking at mid-single-digit growth in in rate base uh, over time. Is that correct? So should we be modeling about 20 to 40 million in growth capex per year there? I think. Uh, Go ahead, Pauline. We, we provided the uh, sustaining CapEx component of uh, approximately 3 to 4% of the, the ROB, which is about $20 million per year. So we provided that disclosure in the MDNA. And uh, the, um, the growth in ROB is, is still holds. It's correct. Okay, great. And then, uh, secondly, going back to, to Taiwan, uh, you talked a little about the uh, potential for uh, moving to larger turbines. wondering if you can give us more color on the overall supply chain development. What what works left to do there, and how how's the uh, supply chain meeting your expectations, and maybe how supportive it is of of your uh, hurdle rates. Uh, 
Sure. I'll, I'll let David speak to that. Great. No, thanks, thanks, Mike. Um, yeah, I can add a little bit of uh, color to that. To that. Um, the main focus for the supply chain at the moment is, I think we've talked on previous calls, is we have, uh, as a number of other projects, the, the localization uh, requirements for the um, uh, uh, for, the, for the first um, uh, uh, project, the smaller uh, project, um, and that's a key focus of the team at the moment to work through that. So that's really, as you imagine, is getting as close to the supply, the local supply chain, um, uh, and that's we're making good progress, and um, and we'll be able to close that out uh, in the second half of this year, which is positive. Um, to the broader supply chain, I mean, obviously Taiwan uh, is is maturing. There's a number of projects that have gone ahead of us. Uh, and so they've done some of the legwork in terms of uh, bringing that supply chain up the learning curve. Um, and so I'm not seeing any any significant headwinds in terms of uh, unlocking value. Um, and as we touched on to the previous question, uh, the 14 megawatt uh, turbine, um, it, it, it's very rare. I've never worked on a project where bringing in a larger turbine hasn't resulted in improving your economics. Uh, I don't see any difference here. And obviously working with the uh, the strength of a, a Siemens Gameta uh, continues to boost that, uh, that that level of confidence we have. All right, great. I'll, I'll leave it there. Thanks for the color. The next question will come from Mark Jarvie with BIBC Capital. Please go ahead. Thanks. Good morning, everyone. Um, maybe I want to turn to Europe here. And at some point, I think there was mention a couple of years ago about maybe monetizing the transmission assets at Gemini, but. Now there's conversations around energy islands in, in the North Sea. So just maybe help us understand how you think that as a strategic asset and, and think about at some point monetizing any of that or other interests in the offshore wind uh, facilities in, in Northern Europe. Well, there certainly is a great deal of an, an interest in, in, in investing in offshore wind, operating offshore wind assets in Northern Europe in general. And, and we uh, certainly regularly get approached uh, on that. Uh, for Northland, obviously, we would have to have some specific use of proceeds uh, if we were to consider uh, any kind of monetization or any kind of sell-down uh, of those assets uh, going forward. But the, uh, uh, there certainly is, as you know, a lot of investor interest uh, and increasing investor interest uh, in offshore wind uh, assets. So obviously you have sort of control on timing if you wanted to access that. But just wondering again on the transmission at, at Gemini, whether or not there's anything you're seeing increased value around that um, that line, uh, given what people are trying to do in terms of expanding the, the network. Yeah, I mean we're currently not looking at uh, uh, monetizing or, or uh, divesting the the transmission line to, to Gemini. Okay. And, and maybe we can just turn to other opportunities around offshore, just maybe Japan starting to move forward. Just remind us again whether or not you, you can participate in the initial auctions or whether or not you have to wait for the, the region that where you guys are located with your partner in, in Chiba. And then whether or not Poland is still a, a market that you're uh, circling and interested in. Uh, for sure. I mean, David can uh, can speak to all of that well. Yes, yeah, that's Thank you. No, happy to uh, happy to do that. Um, uh, thanks, Mark. Um, yeah. So starting off with the with the Japan one. So uh, yes, the project which we've um, uh, we have a partnership uh, partner in Shizen, um, the project in in Chiba. That's one that uh, is not uh, designated by the government in the first two rounds. Um, so you're right in that we won't be participating in those first two rounds with that project. Uh, but it's 
probably not a great surprise to you to say that with the um, uh, with the skill sets and the experience that we have as the you know the, the strong offshore wind developer, um, there is some interest from uh, parties for us to participate in their earlier round projects where they have projects uh, that are. Uh, able to participate in the early rounds, so nothing to reveal on this call. But obviously, we will we'll continue those discussions and hope to unlock earlier opportunities if uh, if we can do that uh, and it works for us and uh, in terms of our participation. Um, so yeah, that's how I see Japan playing out. Um, uh, I mean, you mentioned Poland. I mean, I, I broaden it out to um, to we we, you know, we we look to continue to expand our uh, our offshore portfolio. Um, uh, Poland, yes, you're absolutely right. There are opportunities there which we uh, which we hope to pursue, uh, and uh, and you know I would I could probably uh, identify a number of other markets where we also continue to uh, to look to see if we can add more offshore wind assets into the portfolio, um, which is very much the strategic direction uh, at the moment. Okay, that's great. Thanks, David. And then my last question, maybe just around some of the announcements of things like BP and some of the large oil majors getting more involved in clean energy and um, obviously, you guys have a, sort of a competitive niche and advantage and, and, and some history around this. How do you see their new entrance coming in? Does it, does it impact what you see as your opportunity set over the next five years? And then is there an opportunity to partner with any of them? Has, has there been dialogue around that? Yeah, it's interesting. So, I mean, the, the, the oil and gas majors can either be uh, uh, fall under the, the bucket of threat or opportunity, right, in terms of offshore wind, because uh, they, they, they come in, that they can often be quite aggressive players. So our um, overall strategy, as you know, has been to gain control of offshore wind projects at an earlier stage uh, so that we can then be in a position to bring uh, investors in, including oil and gas majors, uh, as partners, as the, the later as, as the value of those projects increases as we move them through uh, permitting and uh, and other milestones. Uh, so uh, where we kind of see our, where we see a situation where we'd be competing head to head, like in the northeast of the U.S. with oil and gas majors for a lease, uh, that is usually where we kind of tend to back away because uh, we uh, uh, see them bidding in very aggressive ways for, for leases. Uh, and so those types of constructs we try and avoid where we can get control of a project early, like I said, and bring them in as a partner uh, once more value has been created, then, uh, then that is uh, something that we would we'd see as an opportunity for Northland. It's safe to say, Mike, that largely, even with some of the new statements, really nothing's really changed in terms of how you guys see yourself working amongst all the other competition. Uh, not at this point. I mean, we we I mean uh, we continue to obviously uh, talk to various players in the market, including uh, oil and gas majors. Um, but uh, but no, I'd say there's no fundamental change from how I described uh, what we're doing to pursue offshore wind uh, investment opportunities. Okay, thanks for the answers. Appreciate it. The next question will come from Ben Packin with BMO. Please go ahead. Okay. Thanks. Good morning. Um, I wanted to ask, uh, I'm not sure if someone asked this, your, your drip that you um, reinstated. Uh wonder what the, the thought process or, or driver of that. I mean, I, I read the sentence around uh, select growth initiatives, uh, but any more context beyond, beyond that would be appreciated. Uh, yeah, it's exactly that, uh, Ben. It's to give us some uh, additional flexibility to pursue growth, which is very much a part of our core strategy 
with respect to offshore wind. Okay, but it sounds that this isn't, um, I mean, is this more Taiwan you're thinking here? Is this, this more possibly signaling that, that there's a lot of active, a lot of business development going on and there could be some more to come? We are, as David mentioned earlier, we, we are looking at other offshore wind opportunities in, in markets around the world. Typically, well, as you've seen, what we've done more recently is, is, is move into uh, new emerging markets, not, not emerging markets, new emerging markets for offshore wind, uh, where we can uh, uh, get control of a project early on, and then as it moves forward and as we create more value, bring partners in. Um, so, yeah, so I think uh, you, you should expect that David is uh, looking at a number of those opportunities uh, around the world currently. All right, so the, the pressure's on. Um, uh, then, uh, <laughs> That's why uh, I invited him on the call. <laughs> <laughs> so, so maybe can I, can I ask can I ask you then uh, what maybe related to top allocation uh, and you bring in Miss Miss Prince and what's what's the near term uh, deliverable that you're anticipating from her? You had that um, strategic uh, top allocation at your investor day. Is this more to confirm that strategy or augment it, enhance it? Like what, what should we expect from the investor community? Uh, Could you, you just repeat the question again? I think I'm looking at Pauline. I'm sorry, I didn't quite get it. Can you repeat it please, Ben? Yeah, sure, absolutely. So you, you put up the uh, strategy of where you want to invest uh, globally and technology-wise at your investor day. Yes. And now, now you've, you brought in uh, Miss Franks, I guess, to uh, want to confirm to to revisit that. Uh, but what is what is her near-term objectives for you? Is it is it basically confirming that plan, or is there a possibility to to even look beyond that? And and really, what what should we expect um, from from yeah. you the next few That's months? That's fair. That's fair. So I mean, I mean, I think what you can expect is that uh, uh, number one, that we are active, as I said already, in uh, some of the newer markets for, for offshore wind uh, and looking for uh, where we can, can, can establish meaningful stakes in, in projects probably at, a, at an earlier, earlier stage typically. So that's number one, right? And what we like about that, as we've described, is that typically in a new market for offshore wind, uh, you can secure a long-term uh, PPA usually with the government or some agent of the government uh, as the off-taker on that PPA. So that's number one. Number two uh, is, as we did, I believe, uh, uh, disclose at the Investors' Day, uh, moving into Latin America, where we like the uh, growth characteristics of that market overall. Obviously, each individual market is different. Uh, and what, we've, what we're doing there is establishing what I call platforms. So uh, mechanisms in, in specific countries where we can have an advantage uh, over other competitors and where we can also secure superior returns. So whether it's in Colombia, leveraging uh, the EPSA utility uh, for generation or transmission opportunities, uh, or in Mexico, uh, establishing a, a qualified supplier, a power marketer, so that we can match generation from our own assets to load. Uh, in Mexico. So that's 
the the the, the thrust that you're seeing in in, in Latin America, and uh, we hope to have you know more to come uh, in that regard. Uh, and then uh, what Wendy's uh, remit most specifically is is to look for for new growth areas beyond what we would have described at the uh, at the investor day uh, year and a half or almost two years ago now. Uh, and so, uh, which would include looking at uh, uh, renewable fuels, hydrogen storage, uh, to see uh, if there's a meaningful uh, opportunity for, for Northland to invest capital in, in those areas going forward. Okay, that, that's great. And, and then lastly, uh, maybe I wanted to, uh, to see the, the monobucket conclusion. Uh, is it? Yeah, basically you've recovered your your capex through the sale, the, the turbines, and then the insurance. Is it is it basically you're basically NPV neutral on the EBITDA you would have got from it? Is that, is that how we should interpret the end result? Yeah, I would take it. I would I would say that. I mean, I think the way the way we got to it was a combination of uh, uh, what you described along with. Uh, 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 completing the construction ahead of schedule and uh, and some cost savings on construction of the main project. So all told, the, the project ended up coming in uh, slightly under budget and ahead of schedule. Okay. All right. Thank but you very but much. as you described, as you described, uh, uh, NPV neutral. Okay. All right. Thanks. The next question will come from Najee Padoon with Industrial Alliance. Please go ahead. Yeah. Hi. Uh, good morning. Just um, just wondering if you can give us some high-level comments on uh, any new developments in, uh, in Korea, how that development company that you acquired uh, has been performing uh, versus your expectations so far. Yeah, I mean, David's been uh, you know actively working with our team there on on that project and other opportunities in Korea. Yeah, Maddie, I can uh, give you a little bit of uh, uh, further detail on that. Um, the project is progressing well. Um, I guess the first thing that when you enter into a new relationship and start working with um, uh, a new partner in that case, is that settling in well? And I'm pleased to say it is. Uh, and so the teams are uh, working well. We've boosted uh, our own team as well by adding more people into the Korean business uh, to support that project. Um, and uh, it's moving as per plan. Uh, basically, it's at this stage, it's all about uh, engaging further with local stakeholders and building those relationships, which of course are essential to the success of the project, uh, and also the win measurement, uh, the measurement campaigns. So all, all tracking as as expected uh, towards the next the key milestone uh, comes early next year, uh, where we will complete the 12 months of win measurement and we can move forward with the next stage of the permitting. So so um, positive progress to report at the moment. Okay, that's uh, that's great. Um, and, and maybe just an update on uh, some of your uh, maybe I'll call them non-offshore wind developments. Uh, where where are you looking today for uh, some more onshore wind or solar opportunities? Go ahead, David. Mike, yep, yep, just, just, yep. Uh, um, yeah, so you're right. We, we talk a lot, and a lot of these questions, of course, are about the the offshore part of the business, which is, which is of course, a critical uh, part of the business. But we are also looking for for uh, onshore projects. Um, clearly, uh, as we touched up before, the, the, the Latin American uh, opportunities. Um, uh, Mike's already sort of suggested trying to leverage in our position in. Uh, in Colombia through the EPSA opportunity, um, and so we are seeing the first opportunities coming there on the uh, 
on the development side of onshore renewable assets. Um, so that's one positive area where we should where we're seeing more uh, some growth coming, some new projects coming. Um, uh, Europe similarly. Um, so there's a no, of course a number of uh, opportunities, and let's call them more towards the uh, the eastern half of the uh, the European region, uh, where there are markets that are still attractive and still opportunities that we think are values that work for us, uh, where we can unlock um, uh, uh, onshore opportunities. Uh, and I guess also not not uh, forgetting um, one of the markets that are close to home uh, in the North American market. So again, we've been very selective in making sure we were comfortable with the parts of the US that worked for us and we thought delivered value. Um, and so we are um, we're hoping to add further assets to uh, to those who have already acquired in, in North America uh, in the development stage to continue to, to build a, a larger platform there. I mean, if, if you look at our, our, our North Times cash flow, right, the, the, the foundation is uh, long-term uh, contract, ideally, ideally contract with some government entity uh, or agent of a government. Uh, so high-quality long-term cash flow is the foundation. So uh, as you know from, from talking to uh, you know, our peers as well, uh, that is less and less available with onshore renewables. That's why the company likes offshore and why it's, it's in our view, uh, advantageous that we've been able to secure uh, a leadership position globally in offshore wind and why we're pursuing more projects that we've, as we discussed earlier in offshore wind. Uh, so that's number one. Number two, on onshore renewables, there are still some markets where you, you can get long-term contracts. Uh, and uh, so we are pursuing some markets like New York, where they've got a very aggressive uh, program to, uh, to procure renewables over the next uh, uh, decade. So that's a market that, that certainly is, is of interest to us. Uh, Eastern Europe, uh, for the reasons David uh, gave, uh, you can still in certain areas uh, secure long-term contracts. Otherwise, with onshore renewables, it, it is typically more uh, commercial offtake agreements that are underpinning uh, investments, as you know from our peers as well. Uh, so f in that regard, we have increased, as I mentioned at uh, the beginning of the call, our capacity to, to originate uh, such agreements. Uh, but they do need to come with... Uh, uh, a return <laughs> that, uh, that that compensates for the uh, the different risk profile of of the cash flows, and so so that does again uh, have us targeting certain markets uh, for, for those. But that's that's overall uh, strategy. So high quality, long term uh, cash flow from offshore wind and onshore renewables in select markets, uh, and otherwise. Uh, looking at commercial offtake agreements where we can get and finding a way to where we can optimize the, the returns on those, uh, uh, on those assets, such as what we're doing in, in, with EPSA and with the qualified supplier in Mexico, as, as also described earlier. Uh, okay. It sounds like, and, uh, uh, you know, maybe some of your peers who are, let's say, becoming more comfortable with having more merchant exposure in their portfolios, uh, you know, wherever that is around the world, sounds like that's not really your strategy. You're not, uh, you're not really looking at, at more merchant assets uh, right now. Is that fair? I think what I'd say is that, yeah, if any, any IPP that's, that's purely pursuing an onshore renewable strategy will, will inevitably have either uh, shorter tenor commercial contracts underpinning their investments or, and or uh, more merchant exposure. To the extent that we, we, we are still pursuing, which we are, 
uh, you know, incremental growth, what we call kind of singles and doubles through onshore renewables. Uh, you know, we will see uh, more of that type of cash flow at Northland, but, but the foundation and, and what we would look to see being the majority, uh, we still expect to come from uh, uh, long-term uh, government-backed contracts, which uh, we see offshore wind is providing uh, still uh, an opportunity for those. Okay, thanks for the details. That's great. The next question is a follow-up from Sean Stewart with TD Securities. Please go ahead. Thanks. Uh, just just one follow-up, Mike, uh, with reference to your, your comments on New York. Uh, there was a social media post regarding two hires you've made to further projects in New York, and I think there was reference to three onshore wind farms, one of which you have some context on your website about Highbridge. Can you give us an idea of, I guess, the other two projects and, and how you're planning to participate in upcoming RFPs in New York? Well, I think what, what, what I what I can disclose is, is what's what's public is that there's a I think there's been a filing with uh, uh, nice that NYSERDA has made uh, in New York with their their I guess uh, a regulating body to uh, pursue the conversion of the existing REC contracts to the new IREC contract, which is basically the prior REC contract was uh, for the the renewable attributes. Uh, of of a, a project, whereas the new IREC uh, covers both the renewable attributes and also, uh, the, I guess, the brown energy component. So, so it's the full revenue uh, picture for a project is covered by the new IREC, which is designed to further encourage renewable uh, power investments in, in New York State. Uh, so that is something that we're watching closely. Uh, we are, uh, as you know, developing projects in New York, and uh, and that certainly would be uh, something that uh, is of interest to, to us on those projects. Okay. Uh, that's all I had. Thanks. The final question is from Lewis Baker, private investor. Please go ahead. Uh, good morning. I have uh, one question regarding the impairment loss noted in your last annual financial statement of $98 million in connection with the demonstrator project. Has that been finally determined that you're not proceeding to recover that money? Uh, so I'll start off, and then Pauline can add some, some color to that, Lewis. Uh, thanks for your, 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 your continued interest and, and your investment in Northland. Um, so, so through... Uh, if you look at Deutsche Bucht as a as as the, the overall project Deutsche Bucht, uh, uh, which which as you know commissioned at the end of or and was COD when it ended commercial operations at the end of March. If you look at the overall project, uh, the two demonstration turbines were discontinued. We decided not to pursue them anymore uh, through a combination of uh, insurance. Vending the selling the turbines back to the original uh, turbine vendor, uh, as well as uh, improved economics on the project because it came in ahead of schedule and and under budget. Uh, overall, the project Deutsche Bucht, uh comes in in line with what the uh, uh, original economics were expected for it. 
Yes, and this quarter we disclosed that we received other income of $32 million, uh, with the proceeds from the uh, insurance and from the sale of the turbines. I didn't get. I didn't hear those numbers. You were breaking up as you indicated the numbers. Did you repeat slowly for me? Yes. So as disclosed in our press release in MDNA, we reported other income of $32 million as a result of the proceeds from the sale of the turbines in addition to the receipt of the insurance proceeds that Mike referred to. So what was the impairment loss? Any or was it all recovered? In totality of the, of the whole project, there wasn't a material impact on the NPV. But if you're looking at the $98 million of the specific write-off, yep. we received $32 million this quarter. So you wrote off $32 million. And, that, and, that, and that, that will take care of the subject, is that correct? We can follow up with you offline, if, if that's helpful, um, in terms of reconciling what was written off and what was recorded in income this quarter, and I'd be happy to do that. Well, I can give you a call at the office, and um, probably in the, during the week, if you don't if you don't mind. That sounds great. Okay, thank you. At this time, I would like to turn the conference over to Mike Crawley for any closing comments. Thank you very much uh, for joining us today. Uh, we will hold our next call following the re release of our third quarter 2020 results in November. In the meantime, we thank you for your continued confidence and support. Take care. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for participating in today's conference call. You may now disconnect. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.